Test. There we go. It's all good. I do believe, did you announce that next week is Spring Ahead Sunday? Did you tell them that? Yeah. So uh, unless, unless you plan on being at second service, you might want to make a little note. Uh, we usually have a large second service on Spring Ahead Sunday. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there stood a life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was just one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many of those who were rescued and also others from the surrounding area wished to be associated with the station to give their time, their money, their effort for the support of its work. New boats were purchased and new crews were were trained. The life-saving station grew. In time, some of the crew became concerned that the station was sort of crude and poorly equipped. They felt they needed a more accommodating place than the first refuge for those who were snatched from the sea. The emergency cots were replaced with beds and better furniture was purchased for the enlarged building. The station became a popular gathering place for its members. They decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely. Fewer members were now interested in leaving the plush station to go to sea, to go on life-saving missions. So they hired surrogates to do that work. However, they still retained the life-saving motif in the club's decorations, and they even had a ceremonial lifeboat lay in the room where the initiations were held. One dark, stormy night, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, And the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick and obviously from distant shores. (laughs) The station was in chaos. The event was so traumatic that the members contracted for outbuildings to be constructed so future shipwrecks could be processed with with less disruption. Eventually... A rift developed in the station. Most of the members wanted to discontinue the station's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to their normal social life. Some insisted, however, that the rescue was still their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were ignored and told that if they wanted to keep life-saving as their primary purpose, they could begin their own station down the coast, which they did. Over time, the new station fell prey to the same temptations as the very first group, coming to care more and more about comforting one another than rescuing the lost. After a while, remembering their real purpose, again, Another group split off to establish yet another life-saving station. And on and on it went. 
Today, if you were to visit that sea, that sea coast, you'd find a number of impressive life-saving stations along the shore. Sadly, shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but most people are lost. The life-saving station is a parable I first read about in a book called Master's Plan for Evangelism by Robert Coleman. The challenge for churches, the challenge for life-saving stations, if we're not careful, pretty soon we're all about comforting one another and we forget our primary purpose, which is rescuing the perishing. We become uh, museums instead of the main reason, the main purpose that the Lord established the church. The Lord established life-saving stations to begin with. As the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, that was the problem that was beginning to occur in the church at Ephesus. Uh, when he had left, they, they knew what their purpose was. They were a life-saving station. They were all about rescuing the perishing, but now they were suddenly more interested in being an exclusive club. They were more interested in secret truth. Uh, we are not going to any longer proclaim the gospel and reach out to the lost. Uh, instead, we're going to focus on myths and genealogies. We're going to dig in and do a deep study of the Old Testament law instead of proclaiming the gospel to the lost who are perishing. That's why Paul needs to write to Timothy. You've got to get back to your original purpose. Church at Ephesus can't forget what you're all about, your, your genuine, real focus, church at Walloon Lake, because it's really tempting to drift from the main thing if you don't pay attention. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Open your Bibles if you would. Challenges were a life-saving station. That's the heart, that's the desire of Jesus Christ. And you've got to fight against being this elitist, exclusive club and just comforting on one another, and you've got to get back to the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 2, let's stand together. We'll read the first seven verses out loud together. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Lord, uh, help us in your church here at Walloon not to forget your purpose for us.
And Lord, as we study your book today, as uh, we uh, dig in and understand what it is you inspired Paul to write to young Timothy, Lord, help us to understand how this relates to us. Help us to truly comprehend what it is that is the main thing that you care about more than anything else. Lord, I I pray for those who are here even right now who uh, have had an awful week. The storms have been intense. The waves have been crashing into their boats. Lord, some here today are... uh, are sad and miserable and discouraged, and, and I'm asking, Lord, that your word, I'm asking that your spirit, I'm asking that brothers and sisters in Christ might bring encouragement, might bring hope, might bring uh, the, the life-powering spirit of the third person of the Trinity to their lives, even right now. May they know how much you love them, even right where they're standing right now. Lord, uh, we ask you every Sunday to uh, rain down and stream down streams of living water in your church. We want to ask you that again. We, we don't just want to assume your presence. We want to invite the presence of the third person of the Trinity. Lord, nothing lasting, nothing make a difference, nothing that's going to move us up in our relationship with Christ and make us more like him is going to happen unless your spirit comes and does a work. So we invite your spirit to come in your church, and more specifically and perhaps more importantly, Lord, we ask even right now that you take charge of our individual lives. So we uh, step off the throne, we slide over to the driver's seat, and we ask that you might come and take the place that you deserve in our lives right now. May Jesus be lifted high in your church today. And all the church at Walloon Lake said, with passion. (laughs) Nice job. I have to use that word more often. (laughs) Verse 1, 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intersection, and thanksgiving for different types of praying... Be made for everyone. And, you know, Paul, I did a lot of study to figure out what's the difference between these four. Not a lot. (laughs) Again, it's it's different ways praying for others, praying for what's going on in my life, praying. But anyway, it's it's just prayer. Lots of prayer be made for, what does this say, verse 1? Everyone. Verse 2, now he gets more specific for kings and for all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Anybody know who the king of the ancient world was at this time when Paul was writing? Anybody know who the emperor who ruled over Ephesus, ruled over almost all of the ancient world? Anybody know his name? Caesar, but more specifically he was the Caesar by the name of I heard somebody say it. Nero. Yeah. Nero? Good guy, bad guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here, here's a few thoughts. He was cruel. He was vain. He was vicious. He was evil. 
Uh, if, if there was a psychiatrist back then, they'd say, narcissist. This guy was all about Nero, only about Nero. Uh, most historians believe that Nero was behind the great fire that burned much of Rome to the ground in 64 AD. Uh, he wanted to do some big building, and, and yet he couldn't just take over large sessions of the city. Uh, he had some reasons why he would want to have a big fire, and then he could do his grand building that he wanted to do. Anyway, after the fire, he realized that he couldn't take credit for it, so he blamed the church. He blamed followers of Christ for the fire, and he didn't care for Christians anyway because they didn't do real good at kneeling down to him and worshiping him as little g God. So he blamed Christians for starting the fire, and he used that as an excuse to unleash unbelievable persecution on the church. Christians, followers of Christ, were fed to wild dogs and animals. Um, they were lined up on crosses, just like Christ, uh, that would line the street with Christians. Um, and Nero especially liked to light his garden parties with human candles, almost exclusively with Christian human candles. And he would dip people while they're still alive in pitch and then light them and be a human candle for his garden party. That's Nero. Okay? Now go back to verse 2. Paul says, church at Ephesus, pray for everybody. Um, specifically, pray for Nero. Pray for the Roman Senate. Pray for the Roman governors that you have there in Asia Minor. Pray for your authorities, church at Ephesus. And you can almost hear the church at Ephesus, can't you? I can hear them. They say, hey, but, but they're cruel and vain and vicious and evil, Paul. And, and I believe Paul would say, well, that's all the more reason, church at Ephesus. All the more reason for you to pray. Pray, look at verse 2. Pray that they'll leave you alone so that you can live a quiet and peaceful life. And Rosie, that's not just a selfish thing. The quiet and peaceful is the idea, pray that they'll leave you alone, church, so that you can be the life-saving station that you're called to be. Not, not just so that you'll have a happy, don't-mess-with-me life. Pray that you'll be able to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ freely. Pray that, that your authorities will leave the church alone so you can do what you're called to do, and that's to rescue the lost. Application for us here today, church at Walloon, you ready? We should be praying for our authorities too. You understand that, Rusty? We should be praying for our authorities. We're told here, look at verse 2, pray for President Obama. He, he would be... That, that king, that emperor, he, he would be that equivalent for us. Pray for Senators Levin and Stabenow. Pray for Congressman Beneshek. Pray for Governor Snyder. Pray for Judges Johnson and Pytosh. Pray for Sheriff Schneider of Charlevoix County. Pray for Sheriff Wallen of Emmett County. Pray for your authorities. 
church. Um, Kevin Cleavorn gave me a uh, blog by a gentleman named C.S. Hines. I think he got it from his father-in-law. And, he, and it says, is there any excuse for not praying for our president? And then he lists five excuses we use for not praying for our authorities. Five excuses we commonly use for not praying for the president. And I want to share them with you because the truth is I've used some of these myself. So here we go. Here, here's excuse number one. I, I'm too busy to pray for the president. Well, of course you are, he says. You're too busy enjoying the freedoms that our country provides. The freedom to watch television, read romance novels, shop in peace and safety. But if you have the time to grab a Starbucks or a Slurpee, I added the Slurpee part, um, you have time to pray for your president. If you've got time to read the news review, you've got time to pray for your president. If you've got time to watch American Idol, you've got time to pray for your president. Excuse number two. I don't agree with his politics. If you don't agree with his politics, it's all the more reason to pray for him. Shall I say that again? If you don't agree with his politics, it's all the more reason to pray for him. Pray for wisdom and understanding. Pray for good counsel. Pray for the fear of God for our president. And if you really don't like him or agree with him, you're still not off the hook because Jesus says to pray for your enemies, Matthew 5, 44. Excuse number three. My prayer life is already boring, and this sounds boring to me. Okay? Well, look at verse 1 because the Apostle Paul lists four different types of prayer. So you're not confined of, to one way of praying. Um, find one that works for you and start praying for them. Uh, maybe you need to break it down. Maybe you can pray one day for national authorities and then state authorities and then local authorities. And then here's another excuse you could use, right, Chad? I don't know their names. Um, if you've got the Google, your excuse is gone, okay? Because a lot of the names that I came up with, guess where I found them? On the Google. Uh, so again, if you don't know, then, then look them up. No excuse anymore. Used to be you'd have to go to the library and spend an hour or two. Not true now. You can have it in about a minute. Excuse number four. Well, I'm only one person. <laughs> I can't really make a difference. If your prayer didn't make a difference, then why does Jesus command us here to pray? If our prayers don't matter, then why is Jesus commanding us here to pray for our authorities? Plus, when you and I pray, we're, we're really not on our own. And here's the thing you need to remember, because God plus one form a majority. Did you know that? God plus you and I, the God of Scripture, the God of creation plus us, join forces, that's a majority. Excuse number five. Well, other people are praying for him. I don't have to mess with it. There's lots of other people praying for him. We assume lots of other people are praying for the president, so why should we bother? Listen, maybe praying for the president isn't just about the president. Maybe it's also about you and me. Because prayer doesn't just change the person being prayed for. Prayer changes you and me. 
That's far too convicting. Let's move on, okay? Here we go. Verse 3. This is good. This praying for authority is praying for everyone. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Verse 4. Who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Remember that Paul is attacking this exclusive club, this mentality that we're only going to take care of each other and comfort one another. That's what Hymenius and Alexander were doing there in verse 20, teaching myths and genealogies. Let's dig really deep. Let's go into deeper stuff in the Old Testament. No, 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 that's not what you're all about. And it says here, our God, look at verse 4, our Savior wants how many people to be saved? What's, what's the word there? All people. All men, all women from every race and tribe to come to a knowledge of the truth found in Jesus and the gospel. There's another verse I think you know. Um, it, it goes like this. For God so loved who? Like the whole world? For God so loved the whole world, say the rest of it with me, that he what? Gave his only, that whosoever believeth in, should not, but have everlasting. Hmm. Just look at verse 4 for a second, because I want you to see. Paul is saying, so this elitism of Hymenaeus and Alexander, only a few can understand this really intense, deep, spiritual stuff that we're teaching. No, excuse me, it's not only a few can be saved, and it's not universalism, everybody will be saved. Look at verse 4, here's God's desire, that all people be saved. That's his invitation. All people may be saved. He invites all men, all women to be saved. And man's response, most of the time, no thanks, no thanks. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans 3. I want, I want you to see our response. So, so that's God's desire. I want everybody to be saved. And yet here's the response and here's the heart oftentimes of the people who, who are being offered this amazing salvation. Now you've, as it is written, verse 10, Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. They've all turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they don't know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Sound like uh, the world we live in today? Uh, I declare my independence from God. It's really what that, those verses are. I, I declare that I'm going to decide what is right versus wrong in my life. I declare that I'm going to make my own rules. I declare that I don't need a relationship with this Jesus Christ. No thanks. 
and the biblical reality, God wants all men to be saved, but Jesus will not force his love. Do you understand that? Jesus will not force us to accept his agape love. The Lord respects our ability to say no thanks. So why aren't all men saved like God desires? And the answer is because the Lord respects our ability to say no thank you. I don't want you. I'm rejecting your offer. But don't miss the key idea. Go back to 1 Timothy and find verse 4. Don't miss the main idea here. The Lord wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Okay? The God of the Bible continually pursues us. The God of the Bible continually runs after us with his powerful, persistent, sacrificial, eternal love. That's the kind of love that's chasing us down. Why, why does he have that kind of love? Why? Look at verse 4. Because he wants all men to be saved. So even though we say, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, he continues to run after us because he wants all of us to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's love. Why is that needed? Why is that necessary? Um, Why can't I be my own boss? Why can't I make up my own rules? Why can't I just say, no thank you to the gospel and be okay? Verse 5. Here we go. Here's why. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. A mediator is a middleman. Okay, you got two sides, okay? And now you have two parties, and now you need someone to be the middleman, the reconciler, the go-between, a a bridge builder between the two sides. Tracking with me? Mediators come, and, and they're trying to reconcile two parties. They are trying to bring together and arbitrate and negotiate, and a good negotiator has to represent both sides. You understand? Now look what it says. Verse 5. There's one God and one mediator between the two parties. And what are the two parties? You got on one side God, awesome God the Father, and, and puny you and me, mankind. And who is the one and only qualified mediator? It tells us the man, and what's his name? Oh, and that's both his divine name and his human name, Christ Jesus. He's, he's the Messiah and he's Jesus. He's the man, Christ Jesus. A mediator has to represent both sides and bring them together. And only one person was ever qualified. Only one person has the proper credentials to bring together the two sides because Jesus Christ is fully man. He, he was born in a manger. In what town was it again? And he came out of Mary's womb. Fully man, and, and yet he's also 
the second person of the Trinity. He was pre-existent and always as, as the second person of the Trinity. So he can represent both man and God and bring the two parties together. And there's only one person who has the credentials to be able to do that. And then it says, look at verse 6, the mediator, Jesus, gave himself as a ransom for all men. A ransom, biblical times, was something you paid either to purchase someone out of slavery and you would go and pay the price to the master and then they would be free and they would no longer be a slave. Or prisoners of war oftentimes were ransomed. And you were a member of an army and your team lost. And the other army would capture you. And in order to free you from being held captive by the enemy army, someone would pay a ransom. And it was usually a lot of money. And it said in a lot of the commentaries, not many people were ever ransomed. It was so expensive, it wasn't happening very often. Okay? So now you got the idea. Look at verse 6. Jesus gave himself as the ransom. For who? Verse 6. Who, who did he give that ransom? Who did he pay the ransom for? For who? Verse 6. All men. Everybody. He purchased everybody out of slavery to sin and self and Satan. He paid to release us, and we were slaves. And we have an enemy, and he hates us. And, and we were slaves to our old sinful nature. The mediator, the one who can bring both sides together, he's the one who sacrificed and paid the ransom for us. And what was the price that the mediator paid? His, his sinless life. He, he willingly offered his life on the cross. And he willingly offered his shed blood to wash and cleanse and purify our sin. D do you get it now? Only one person was qualified to bring God and man together, and that was Jesus Christ. And he paid the ransom, he paid the price. So, here's the question we oftentimes get. Track with me, because I've been asked this question a lot. I bet you have too. So, if, if, if there's this one God who wants all men to be saved, why doesn't he give lots of different ways to salvation? You ever had anybody ask you that? Maybe you've wondered it. Well, why can't um, men be saved through Islam or, or Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism or some newfangledism. Why can't everybody be saved if that's God's desire that all men be saved? And the answer, Paul's answer, go back, verses 5 and 6. There is an answer here because there's only one Savior God in history. Because there's only one qualified mediator between God the Father and mankind. There is only one go-between, there is only one bridge builder between awesome God and puny you and me, right? And his name is Christ Jesus. <laughs> and he's the one that paid the price. He's the one that offered his body 
and his blood as the ransom for everyone who will believe and trust and follow him. There's only one. That's the answer because there's only one. And this is not exclusive, y'all. This is not exclusive because the offer is open to all men and all women and all peoples down through history. So it's not an exclusive, oh, you guys are just being exclusive. No, no, it's not. It's, all, it's open to everyone. So, what's the takeaway for us here this morning? Got just a few minutes to close. I want to offer up two takeaways for you and I. So, so what should we grab a hold of from God's word here? Two specific ways I want to challenge us. First, there's a danger that we get so angry and frustrated with our leaders and authorities that we would rather wipe them out than pray for them. And honest, I sense that in the church today. We're so angry and we're so frustrated with our leaders and authorities. We, we're, we're praying, Lord, rain down fire on them. Lord, lightning bolts, get them. And we would rather wipe them out than pray for God's working in their lives. And I would like to suggest to you that maybe the reason they're so frustrating and angering to us is because we're not praying for them. It's time for us to take this command, verse 2, to heart. <laughs> Lord, help me to start praying for President Obama and Vice President Biden and the Chief Justices of the Supreme Court and Senator Reid and Speaker of the House Boehner and Michigan Senators Levin and Stabenow and Representative Beneshek and Governor Snyder. And we're saying, but I don't like them. I'm tired. They frustrate me. They make me angry. All the more reason to be praying for them. All the more reason for us to get serious and do our part. And do our part. We're called. We're, we're, we're commanded to be praying for our authorities and leaders. Pray for their salvation. Pray that the Lord will work in them. Pray that the Lord will work in them so they'll leave us in the church at Walloon Lake to live strong the gospel so we can keep being a life-saving station. Do you know there's been lots of countries down through history? And I think the church quit praying this way. And they weren't praying that they could live quiet and peaceful lives so they could keep on living strong. And you know what happens when you don't pray and do it God's way? Oftentimes, those freedoms are taken away. Second takeaway is this. The key to changing a nation is the salvation of sinners. The key to changing a nation is the salvation of sinners. Here's what I mean by that. People saying yes to the mediating, ransom-paying, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that happens, and I'm proud of you guys, one person at a time, doesn't it? Oh, but I want to do like a thousand at a time. No, almost always it happens one at a time. 
But where does this begin? How do we reach the lost? How do I see a nation changed one person at a time? Are you ready? Go back to verse 1. This is pretty basic. It starts by praying for them. It starts by diligently praying regularly for those around us who are lost and perishing and their boat starting to take on water and they're in danger of crashing into the rocks or maybe their life has already crashed into the, in the rocks. And I'm going to start saying, Lord, work in their life. So here, here's my question. Who are some people around you who have boats, who have lives that are getting leaky and they're in danger of capsizing? They're in rough seas right now and things aren't going well and they're in danger of drowning and they're in danger of crashing on the rocks. Who are the people around you, and here's what I mean by that, whose marriages are struggling? Great people to start praying for. People around you uh, whose finances are awful, those are great people to pray for right now. Who are the people around you, their children are in trouble? Those are good people to pray for. Who are the people that you know their addictions are out of control? They're in a great place to start praying for. Who do you know their health is failing? Good place to pray. Who do you know that's discouraged and depressed? Good people to start praying for. Do you understand? It's when people are in the boat and their boat's not doing well. They're, they're, things are going poorly. They're in a great place to start praying for them. People whose lives are about to crash on the rocks, their boat's going over, they're about to drown, they're needy, their hearts are soft, they're usually in a great place to hear about this Jesus Christ and the cross. And they're especially in a great place for followers of Christ to start showing love and kindness and splashing agape love on. But it starts not with actions. Where does it start? Verse 1. With prayer. So here's my challenge. You ready? On the back of your bulletin, would you grab it? You've got some lines here. If you don't have a pen, you can imaginary write it down. You're going to write it down later, okay? Um, First list, who are the people in your life whose boat is in danger? Who are the students around you, and they're not doing so good? Maybe they're, they're about to get thrown out of school. Maybe, maybe they're about to flunk out. Maybe things are going really poorly between them and their parents. Who are the people around you and their marriages, their finances, their health? It's bad. Great places. Just start praying for them. And here's what I know. Fajin, as you start praying for people, your heart starts to tenderize for them. And as your heart starts to tenderize for people, the Lord will show you what to do next. So you just start, you just start praying, and the Lord will, will do a work in your life as you start praying for those people around you. People who are your neighbors, people you work with, people you go to school with, people who are your relatives. Just start praying for them. So would you write down? Go ahead, this is your time. Take a couple minutes, write down. Oh yeah, there, there's, uh, there's uh, Aunt Susie and... Uh, 
There's ugly Bill across the street. Sorry if you're Bill. Yeah, he's ornery. He doesn't like anybody. Uh, write some names down. And you know where I'm going next, don't you? And, and now, I, I want to. The, the second list I want you to write is who are those authorities in your life that you need to start praying for? And I dare you to start praying for the commander-in-chief. I dare you. And even if it never changes him, it'll start changing you. Yeah. And who are the other authorities that you need to pray for? And, and again, maybe you need to break this down. One day, Lord, I'm going to pray for national authorities. One day, I'm going to pray for state authorities. And... The next day, I'm going to pray for the Melrose Township folk and, and the sheriff and, and the local uh, county commissioners and such. Uh, but some way, somehow, we need to start praying. It starts with prayer. Do you understand? He, he's, telling, he's telling young Timothy, you need to start praying, church. You need to start praying. Pray for those whose lives are a mess your life-saving station. God's desire is that all men will be saved. And you need to pray for your authorities as well. I'll be praying that many of you pick up the challenge and that you uh, grab a hold of your list and you start praying. Real, life-changing stuff happens when we take God's word serious and here, start praying. I dare you. I double dog dare you. Triple dog dares. No, I better not because triple dogs go first. I quadruple dog you. I dare you. Take your list. Go to work. That's how God changes stuff. It's through us lifting these people up before the Lord. Bow your heads, shut your eyes. Lord, you're awesome, and we appreciate once again your word because you don't think like we do. <laughs> your instructions to us uh, are much different than the way we would handle situations. And Lord, we get frustrated and angry and disgusted with authorities and sinners around us and yet you challenge us to pray. I pray that we'll start doing that as your church. Show us the people around us whose lives are about to crash and burn, whose boats maybe have already flipped over and they're in danger of drowning. Lord, those are uh, folks we need to start lifting up before you. And Lord, as we regularly pray for those folks, Lord, show us. Show us what you have in mind regarding them. And Lord, I, I pray for the authorities that you've placed over us. I pray especially for the ones that we don't like and we didn't vote for. Lord, those are the ones who probably need our prayers the most. So uh, may we do the hard work that you've called us to. 
Lord, may we never become an exclusive elite club as your church. May we never forget that we're called to be a life-saving station. Use your church at Walloon to shine bright and strong in this week ahead. It's in the awesome name of the ransom payer, Jesus Christ, we pray all these things. Amen.